Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Good morning. We're continuing our series in the book of Genesis, part two of the book of Genesis, the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're picking up with verse seven of chapter 15 of Genesis. Having heard last week of the righteousness that Abram had before God, a righteousness that was not his own, but that was credited to him from someone else's account, from the vast treasuries of merit that belong to Jesus Christ, and that God is able to impart to those who have faith in him, um, and so that they can stand righteous before God. That is the righteousness Abraham, Abraham had, and that's what we heard of last week. We turn now to the next verses, just after this wonderful statement where Abram is commended for his faith and we're taught of this righteousness and how it's given to him. And we begin to see immediately just how tenuous and weak and frail Abram's faith is that he should turn and start to test God and question him and as it were seem to doubt him and his promises. Let's turn now to Genesis 15 starting in verse 7. This is God's word and it is eternally true. And he, that is God, said to him, Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to God to him, and cut them in two, and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, and the Kenizzite, and the Kadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Raphaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. This is the word of the Lord. God intends 
through this next interaction with Abram to increase the faith that he had begun in him and to establish more firmly the promises that he has made to Abram, particularly that his descendants, that he and his descendants would receive a land. And so the Lord begins by reminding Abram of of the great deliverance that he has already performed and accomplished in his life. He says in verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. What does Ur of the Chaldeans represent in Abram's life? Well, it's his homeland. It's the place that he has left. But more to the point, it is a wicked land full of idolatry and false worship, which Abram himself would to this day, or when the Lord is speaking to him, be participating him to the corruption of his own soul if the Lord had not come and called him and brought him out and given him the trust and the faith necessary to fulfill, to obey his word. And so the Lord begins by assuring or calling to mind these things to Abram and, and saying, Abram, cast your mind, your eyes back there and look what I have done for you already. And he doesn't just speak this to Abram, but also for our benefit today. God is not just the God of our beginnings. He doesn't just lead us to faith and then leave us to ourselves, but rather is the God of our whole existence, our whole life, our daily life. And our faith day to day is very weak, very timid, very up and down. Lots of doubts arise in our hearts. And God is teaching us here that it's very useful to call to mind what he's done for us in the past. He's constantly coming to us in his word and reminding us of the power of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, which is a great deliverance that he has done for us, accomplished for us. But in particular ways in our lives, this has come about, right? We've come to a knowledge of the work of Jesus in our lives in particular circumstances. I have mine. I know when the Lord called me and what he called me out of. And if you know the Lord, you too know what he has called you out of. Looking back on that is a very important work because that is one of the key ways that we can maintain our faith in this very difficult walk that God has called us to. This path that we walk is difficult. And it's hard to maintain faith. Faith is not just something we can take for granted. It has to be tended or it will be lost. One of the ways to keep it is to remember what God has done for us. I, I heard that Pastor Max Carell, who's been starting a new small group this last year, thought, well, hey, let's, let's have everybody, one at a time, one a week, share their testimonies so that we can get to know one another. But I think that it would actually be very good for all of our small groups to take turns sharing our testimonies. Because it's not just encouraging to the one who's sharing as they get to relive in their minds the wonderful things that God has done, but all of us get to both be encouraged by what God has done for them and remember what he's done for us. I commend that to you, that we would begin to share our stories with one another of what God has saved us from. What does Ur of the Chaldeans mean for you in your life? Now, in light of Abram's faith that was commended in verse 6, you remember this statement in verse 6 that Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's a great commendation of faith. Immediately, we see that Abram 
is, I think, faltering in that faith. It's as if, in verse 8, he says, Oh Lord, how may I know that I will possess it? God says, I brought you out in order to give you this land. And Abram says, how will I know? It's as if he's saying, yes, yes, Lord, I know that you've said this and this. And I, you know, but how will I know? We look at this and we're tempted to think since we live, you know, we, we live in the bumper sticker world. All of our faith is lived out on bumper stickers. And that's about the, you know, the extent of our understanding of godliness and the life of faith. And so it's, we have this bumper sticker that we can all say amen to because there's a lot of truth to it. But it's also very easy for us. But it says, God says it, I believe it, that settles it. What further confirmation should we need than the word of God? It's authoritative. God knows all things. He speaks what he speaks for the good of those who believe. He is trustworthy and always true. What further confirmation could we need? And if Abram was a good evangelical Christian, what further confirmation should he need? But it seems as if Abram's asking for something more tangible, some sign from God that this is going to come about. He's not the only one in the Old Testament who asked for such a sign. Gideon, you remember? King Hezekiah is less commonly known, but he too asked for a sign that God would prove to him what he had said would come about. But didn't Jesus say in the Gospels that it's an evil and an adulterous generation that seeks for a sign? And so is this, isn't this an indication that Abram has suddenly, almost immediately slipped into hard-hearted unbelief and doubt? Well, maybe not, I wouldn't put it as strongly as that perhaps, but yes, he is, his faith is like your faith, like my faith. It's very weak. It's a very tenuous thing. And he's been trusting God and following God. God has been promising him wonderful things. He's getting old. God again comes to him and says, I'm going to give you this land. And shows him the stars. And, and, and Abram, just like you or me, finds it difficult to believe it. And so I want you to consider the great compassion and mercy of God to Abram and which he also freely pledges to you and me here, that he doesn't require perfection in faith that saves. Abraham has not lost his faith. He's merely weak in faith, like you and I are. And praise God. He does not require perfection in faith. But only just a little spark of it, and that's enough to appropriate to us the entire righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he's also very mindful that our faith is tenuous and weak. And he doesn't, he doesn't rebuke Abram. He doesn't chide him. But he bends low to give Abram what he asks. He gives him a sign. Listen to what John Calvin says about this. He says, The Lord sometimes concedes to his children that they may freely express any objection which comes into their mind. And isn't that a good summary of many of the Psalms? David freely give, offering up his objections to God without God chiding him or rebuking him for it. So 
God concedes to his children that they may freely express any objection which comes into their mind, for he does not act so strictly with them as not to suffer himself to be questioned. God allows himself to be questioned by us. Now, not all questions are created equal. Some of them flow from unbelief and hard-heartedness, and that's Jesus is confronted with his overwhelming crowd of hard-hearted people. And so he says, it's a... This is evil and an unbelieving generation. This is not Abram's state of mind or heart. He's merely weak in faith, and God is very patient and kind with those who have faith but are weak in it. Dads, are you in any way like this with your children? You know, normally we would not make this point because we are such a wimpy generation that dads just need to be encouraged to have strength to discipline their children and at times, to just be short with them, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it takes so much work to just to get wimps like me, to have the confidence to be a good dad in that way. But it's tempting for those who are working very hard to reclaim things, to not go overboard, overreact. And so here's what I want to say to us today. Do we reflect in any way this attribute of God, this compassion and patience of God with our children? Do we suffer ourselves to be questioned? Think how many times you have the question why put to you, moms and dads. Sometimes, maybe most of the time, it's good to just respond and teach the children, because I said so, or stop questioning me. But if there's nowhere in our lives that we're reflecting the patience and the kindness, the humility as it were, of God in this way, then we're not reflecting accurately the character of God to our family, to our employees. It's the job of parents to discern the difference between children who are asking out of foolishness or hard-heartedness, out of, you know, anger and rebellion, and when they're asking because they're weak, and when we determine that that's because of their weakness, we should be like God, and, and concede, and suffer ourselves to be questioned. And it's the job of us, as adults, to examine ourselves, to see if the doubts that rise in our hearts are something that we should offer to God or whether we can't just rather put them to death. You know, David thought a lot more than he said in the Psalms. It is amazing how much he did say in the Psalms, but I guarantee you, he thought a lot more than he dared to say. And there should be things that we don't dare to pray to God or accuse him of or question him about. There are passages of scripture that are hard to accept. And how do we go about working that out, working through that in our lives? Is, it, is, our, is our struggle with God's word a humble struggle where we're confessing our weakness to accept or believe or to put into practice something he said? Or is it hard-heartedness and unbelief? We have to discern these things in ourselves. That's our job. We, we know from God's accommodation of Abram here, there's no, he just concedes to 
Abram's request and, and answers him with a sign. We know that Abram's state of heart and mind is like the father of the demon-possessed boy in the Gospels. Um, this father came to Jesus and he said, do something for my, my son if you can. Remember this? And Jesus says, if you can. All things are possible to those who believe. And he said immediately what? Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. This is, this is what Abram's going through. This is, an, this is, is, Lord, I'm old. Give me a sign. I need assurance. Now, if this is Abram's cry to God, who is the father of all who believe and who is miles above us in faith and faithfulness before God. How should our dependence on God be reflected in our prayer lives? Do you find yourself crying out to God, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief? Is this something that is basically a daily prayer in your life? It ought to be. And if it is, then you, have, you found a friend in, in Father Abraham and, a, and an infinitely greater one in Jesus Christ who knows how to sympathize with your weakness. If, however, this is not your constant and daily plea, then I doubt very much that you are acquainted with the way of salvation, with the way of faith. Because the way is hard. The gate is narrow that leads to life. And it, it's a sign when we don't have any sense of of the difficulty, the struggle of faith, that we're not engaged in the fight of it, that, it doesn't, it's, that it's non-existent in our life. And so I'd say, where's the struggle in your life with sin, with your own doubt? Where's the temptation that's completely overwhelming to you? Where's the daily dependence on God's help and mercy in your life? What's your prayer life like? Does it reflect the weakness of the father of our faith. Well, in the rest of the verses, 9 to 21, we see that God gives Abram a sign. And it is ultimately a hopeful sign, but it is not at all one that is designed to appeal to the flesh. In so many ways, this is a very dark moment. Abram's terrified, you know, the sleep comes over him and there's there's doom and gloom all around and then the words that are prophesied to him are very difficult words to receive and then he has these animals to kill. It says that in verse 9, God said to him, here's the beginning of the sign, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And then he brought all these to God and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other. What do these animals symbolize? This, this stuff we read it in scripture and it's just like, I don't know if it's that we're just non-thinking or if we like to have everything just so easily or we have no acquaintance with what it is like to kill an animal with your bare hands probably a combination of all those things but you have to think about what this would be like 
This is like a whole day's work. And a very disgusting work. I had the benefit of living, growing up on a farm. We, didn't, we weren't real farmers, but we were kind of farmers. And we, we kind of slaughtered a pig one time. <laughs> In our garage. Totally disgusting. It stunk. It was just gross. And this, you have to imagine, that's what this is like. So Abram asked for a confirm, confirming sign, and this is what God provides. Take these animals and cut them. Kill them and cut them and lay them out like that. Just covered in filth from these animals, doubtless, and exhausted from the labor of it. And what on earth could this mean, you know? So what does it mean? We must be careful not to read into this our knowledge of the Levitical sacrifices that come much later, I think. The reasons for it would be that there's no burning of the animals. There's no altars mentioned. There's no ceremonial waving of, uh, of a leg or something of an animal or of eating it ceremonially. There's none of that. It's just animals killed, cut in half, and put on the ground. What does this depict? Well, I think it depicts at least two things. It was the custom in those times for two parties to establish covenants by cutting animals in half and walking between them together. They would first, they'd, they'd lay out these animals, they'd kill them, cut them in half, and then they would set the terms of their covenant or their agreement, and then the two of them together would walk between these animals as a, as a sign of a contract. It was basically like they're making a contract. And what the contract was symbolizing was, let it be done to me and you if either of us, if either of us break or go back on any part of our agreement. Let us be torn in two. A very vivid image. And so God has spoken his word to Abram. He says this will come about. He's spoken it multiple times. Abram asks for a sign. And look at the sign God gives him. You know, it's, everyone agrees that the torch that passes in the dream between the animals is, depicts God for Abraham. God himself comes and he says, okay, Abram, I'm going to up the ante. I'm going to, I, let it be done to me. I curse myself to death to be ripped apart into pieces if I do not come if I do not fulfill my word to you, Abram. This is an amazing act of God to, to, to go to such lengths to bind himself and prove himself to his son, Abram. But more poignantly, I think it also represents Abram's offspring, which he's been promised. Uh, the whole word that comes after it, the explanation of this, I think, shows that these four animals that represent the four generations that are talked about in, in uh, God's covenant. Um, he says in verse 13, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. And then in verse 16 he says, Then in the fourth generation they will return here. So 400 years and four generations. That doesn't normally add up in our accounting generations for us are more like 20 to 30 years. Um, and, and yet, I think the best way to make sense of this, it's clear that this is, these are equivalent terms in this prophecy. 
400 years, four generations. I think the best thing, way to think of it is four lifespans of time. 400 years, four generations, or four lifespans of time. And this foretells of very difficult things. Yet God has promised Abram children that outnumber the stars of the heavens, and he's promised them all a land that would be theirs forever. And here, Abram asks for a sign to prove it, and the sign indicates that these descendants will have 400 years of very difficult times ahead. Great suffering, great sorrow, great fear and trembling. And so these animals, I think, very poignantly represent Abram having to cut up the own, his own, the, the promise, the promised offspring that God has pledged to him and lay them out before the Lord. What a very difficult thing to do. What a very strange and difficult way for God to pledge or to seek to strengthen Abram's faith. How on earth could this be used to strengthen Abram's faith? Why would God treat his son this way? Why would he treat his children this way? Why would he mingle his promises with such severe disciplines? Well, I think at least for a couple of reasons. First, that Abram would be taught to put his hope in an eternal kingdom. We know that the, the, the land of Canaan represented for the people of Israel, and well, at least the believing people of Israel, and for us in our understanding of Scripture, heaven. It was like a symbol on earth of an eternal kingdom. And we know from Hebrews 11 that Abram looked through this sign, this emblem of, of heaven, and saw heaven. And set his eyes on heaven. This is what it says in Hebrews. By faith Abram, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise. That's where he is now receiving this word from the Lord. And he lived there as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Why? Because he was hoping for that piece of ground, right? He was holding out for it. No, it's not what it says. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And we understand that this is indicating that Abram's eye was, was fixed beyond. He was looking for an eternal city. And he put his hope there. It says that he died in faith in verse 13 of that chapter without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. It's absolutely clear that Abram's was a sojourner. Even, even if God were to give him the land, the promised land, that Abram's faith was beyond it, that he was a sojourner, even in the best of times, on this earth. Now, this is a wonderful testament of Abram's great faith, right? But look at what, at what God used to produce such faith in him. We're very sentimental 
about the life of faith, you know. We read these verses, God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. These are all over Facebook. They're on our bumper stickers, right? But this is where it starts to meet reality. When God works all things together for good, he means, Abram, take your, symbolically take your children, which I promised to you, and cut them in half and lay them on the ground, dead. And Abram, what I'm trying to teach you is that I'm going to fulfill my promise to you, but it's, it's going to be through 400 years of very difficult times. Slavery in Egypt. Here's what Calvin again says about it. Abram certainly wished to be assured of the promised inheritance of the land, and now he is taught that it would take its commencement, its beginning, from death. That is, that he and his children must die before they should enjoy the dominion over the land. For thus does the Lord deal with his own people. He always makes a beginning from death. So that by quickening the dead, he the more abundantly manifests his power. We're going to sing a song at the end of our service, Lord willing. Um, O love that will not let me go. There's was this very wonderful line in the last verse. That from the ground, that there, the seed falls into the ground, and from the ground there blossoms red, life that will endless be. Seeds are a wonderful picture of how God works. They fall into the ground and they die. And that is the beginning of incredible life and fruitfulness. But let's not be sentimental about it. It means 400 years of slavery. Now what do we learn from this? Well, we learn how great our pride and great our wickedness and our addiction to this world is that God should have to conquer it with incredible means. These are his people. This is how he deals with his people. And what we learn about ourselves is that this is what it takes to get us to look to him, to call out upon him. It's all through the Old Testament we see this depicted story after story that it's only when God brings trouble into the lives of his people that they look to him, that they, they cry out to him. And so his people, the ones he loves, are always in trouble. They're always oppressed. How does David become a man after God's own heart? Trouble. So do we embrace trouble in our lives? Do we resent it or do we embrace it? If we, do, if we don't embrace it, if we don't accept it and what, do what James amazingly commands us to do in it, which is to count it all joy then what hope is there for us? We just don't have any sense of our own, what I want to call an addiction to what we see and touch and taste and feel here. Faith is the hope for things that are not seen. And we, if left to ourselves, if left untroubled by the Lord, we would be completely content completely in bondage to Netflix and not praying, 
not calling out on the, for the Lord's help, not living in any way that reflects his children, the life of his children as we see it depicted in scripture. I want to read to you a hymn by John Newton, which gets at this very well. Curtis Cook has sung it a couple of times for us. It's just a wonderful hymn, and it bears absolutely no resemblance to Christian music today or our sentimental view of how God works in our lives and how he produces the good things that he promised. It's called, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. It's a godly prayer. I'm sure most of us have found ourselves praying that prayer regularly in our lives. And the hymn goes on, "'Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair." Abram asked for a sign, "'Lord, how may I know?' It's very much like the question at the beginning of this hymn. "'Teach me more. Reveal more to me. Help me. I want to grow.'" But the Lord answered in such a way as almost certainly must have driven Abram to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart, and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand he seemed to intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds, which, we'd, which is too old of an expression for us to understand, but it basically means humbled my heart and laid me low. Lord, why is this, I trembling cried? Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ, they don't come from Satan, they don't come from a broken world, they come from the Lord. These inward trials I employ, from self and pride to set thee free, and break thy schemes of earthly joy, that thou mayest find thy all in me. Where is the source of joy and comfort, and health, and life. There's only one place. It's in the Lord. And the only way we would ever look to him is through the means, the agency, obviously his Holy Spirit at work, but using most difficult circumstances in our life to wean us from this world, to cross all our fair designs and schemes, to humble us and cause us to cry out to God. Why would God prophesy 400 years of suffering to Abram's descendants? Why would God allow you and me to lose a spouse or to lose a child? Have you heard that question? It's a really bad question. Why do bad things happen to good people? There are no good people, so it's a wonder good things happen to anybody. 
But this is a real question. Why do bad things happen to God's people? And the answer is because God designs a good thing for them. He knows that what is good for his children. And we must be disciplined. And if we're out without the discipline of the Lord, we're not his sons. This is how or why James, the apostle, calls us to rejoice in our trials, to count it all joy. Have you ever noticed parents that your children enjoy your discipline? Not always the case. It's not immediately apparent all the time. But I've noticed that my children enjoy discipline. They feel assured by it. They feel safe. They know the boundaries. And sometimes I see them asking for it by their behavior. To be reassured of my love for them and of the boundaries of their life so that they feel, they they know the borders. And you feel safe when you know your borders. We should count it all joy when we encounter various trials. Why? Because they produce in us endurance. What does endurance mean for us? It means making it to heaven. That's what it means. Making it to heaven. So you think of the severe mercies that God has brought into your life. Many severe mercies that we haven't yet known among us are coming. And what are they? Well, they're severe, but they're mercies. The second reason that God would allow this to happen to his people is Right there in the text, he says that this is going to happen because the wickedness of the Amorites is not yet complete. And we learn all kinds of things about the Lord from that. One, that he sets the boundaries of nations and does not normally change them unless a people so corrupts the land, pollutes it with their sin, that they lose the right to it. God gave the Canaanites this land. And it was theirs because of God's gift. And they had not yet lost the right to it. But God, knowing all times, the end from the beginning, knew that they would. And he knew the time at which they would have crossed the line or filled up the cup of wrath. We learn that God is patient with the wicked. He lets them hang themselves, as it were. Another way of putting it is he gives them time to repent so that his justice can be shown abroad to be true and right altogether. What was the sin of the Canaanites? It was very, very sobering to realize it's just the sin of America, almost to a T, actually to a T. There's one of them we haven't quite made legal yet, but that will likely come. Adultery, incest, homosexuality, 
abortion. They offered their children to the god Moloch to be killed and burned in a fire. Homosexuality. Bestiality. That's the one we haven't yet made legal. But it's here. We got it. It's very sobering to realize that God is right now being patient with the wicked, but we are storing up wrath unto ourselves. There's no doubt that we are corrupting, polluting our land and losing our right to it. And that will mean something in history. God is not mocked, and he brings about justice in this world. But he brings about it on his timetable and in his way and according to his secret counsel of things, his accounting, which we can't peer into. Here Abram's given a little prophetic glimpse that it's going to be 400 years. And we don't know the future of America. But even if if God were to come down here today and say it's going to be, you've had 250 some odd years going strong now, you're going to have 250 years now of unbelievable economic hardship, famine, and the Chinese are going to come and take us over and all the things are going to happen. Could we have faith for that? Could we count it all joy? Could we trust God and continue to walk in a way that pleases him and be faithful in our lives? Yes, absolutely we can. What is God's purpose in suffering for you and for me at this time in our lives, in this climate in America? What's his, what's his purpose? Why are we here? Well, we're here abiding the time or waiting for the time when he will bring about justice in this world. There will be a day of reckoning, a day of accounting, and we, we hope in it. We look forward to it. But there's a point to us being here, and that is that you and I, we're not yet fit for heaven. And for some reason, God has been pleased to not just snap his fingers and translate us immediately into glory, but to cause us through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of heaven. And if it was good enough for Father Abraham and the children of Israel, then it's good enough for the church today to accept this condition, to not be despairing or hopeless about it, to trust that this is, to be humble and quiet in God's how Calvin would say, in God's school. This is God's school, and we're to be good pupils in it, and to look at his severe mercies in our lives when they come, and rejoice, knowing that this comes from the loving hand of our Heavenly Father. We don't see any indication here at the end that Abram is faithless, but rather he just carries on. So, Isn't it interesting how God confirms his promises and how he works faith in us?